Hello and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal, and coming up in a moment, I'll chat with Madeline Puckett, not only the author of the New York Times bestseller, Wine Folly, but also one of the most passionate wine lovers I know. Now, if you'd like to further your love of wine, I'd love to help. I offer classes, trainings, and other fun wine events through my website, vinetrainings.com. That's vine with a V. Events can be matched to your group size and personal interests and feature both great wine and lots of fun information. Before we get to the show, a thought. One of the most amazing things about the world of wine these days is that there are more ways to learn about it than ever before. Information about wine is no longer scattered and hard to find, but in fact is readily available. Books like The Amazing World Atlas of Wine or Madeline's Wine Folly offer incredible amounts of information, and organizations like the Guild of Sommeliers have compiled vast stores of relevant wine laws and regulations. So if you want to understand what the precise requirements are for Barolo DOCG as an example, that information can be at your command in seconds. Furthermore, interest in wine has continued to skyrocket, especially here in the U.S. Sales are up, and wine culture has become pop culture in many ways. Winemakers and sommeliers are becoming celebrities, while the wines that generate the most attention in those circles are just as likely to be from Bulgaria as Burgundy. The explosion of regions, varietals, and styles on the market is tremendously exciting for the interested drinker. Yet what's most exciting to me is to think about all the stories that can be told by those wines. No longer is the story of wine only told in French. Now, it's told on different continents, in different languages, in almost every corner of the globe. It's told in regions both old and new, by first-generation winemakers and families whose history stretches back centuries. It's a story of hypermodern technique and ancient practices, and we as wine drinkers are all the better for this diversity. While the increase in wine data is useful and interesting, the vast diversity of wine available is what makes this the most exciting time in history to be a wine lover. Speaking of, it's my pleasure to welcome New York Times bestselling author and die-hard wine lover Madeline Puckett to Disgorged. Madeline, thanks so much for joining me. What are you drinking? Um, I just wrote an article about Prosecco, so I thought I'd put my tips to the test. So I went to the grocery store and just picked at random a Prosecco based on the like, hey, you should try these because these are generally higher quality based on their classification system. Mm -hmm. So I picked out a Brut uh, Valdo Biadene. Oh, yeah. Uh, Conegliano Valdobbiadene uh, Prosecco. Cool. The DOCG, because that's better than just Prosecco Doc. Yeah. And by gum, it's good. And I'm making pad thai later, so. Oh, nice. <laughs> that is like the perfect pairing known to man. Pad thai, Prosecco, good to go. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's actually, that's like a, a really good segue into like the first, one of the first uh, things I wanted to talk about, which is like, what's really interesting to me about um, I think where it seems from my perspective of the sort of direction you've gone with uh, with Wine Folly and the, the blog, especially is really um, very kind of consumer focused. And I think, you you know, you write a lot about sort of the, the challenge that people generally face, which is like you walk into a grocery store, or even a wine shop these days, and holy shit, there's a lot of wine there and, and trying to understand what you're buying, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Prosecco and, and different classifications there or, you know, wine from Europe generally or wine from, you know, hell, the rest of the world. Like, is that is that a is that how you see what you're doing now is is, is maybe a little more consumer focused or is that always kind of been how you've have looked at your writing? 
that's all that's always been the goal of the writing i you know if you look at some of my earlier stuff i'm i'm experimenting a lot i'm trying to figure out my voice and how to communicate and then as i got sort of more figured out i sort of honed that that style um into communicating what people really wanted you know i used to be a little bit more sardonic and and use a lot more humor in my writing. And then I started focusing more on writing answers because I realized people go into a grocery store and they're just overloaded. And they're just like, what is Prosecco? <laughs> yeah. What am I drinking? I don't even know the answer to that. It's not like a video store where you're sold with a cover and it's like, this is in the drama section and you're guaranteed to cry a lot. You know, you don't have those types of, you know, answers at a in a wine store you just have a bunch of bottles and all the bottles look the same i mean you know there's some slight different shapes of bottles you know <laughs> but other than that you don't really know what you're getting into so the blog sort of turned more after more into less focus on sort of the lifestyle of wine and more focus on on answers how do i get a good bottle of wine how do i enjoy wine um so that's basically what we focus on the most, and I'm uh, working towards creating sort of two offshoots of that, a really focused on learning section of the site, and then another section that's a little bit more lifestyle where I can bring back in some of that humor that I like so much when we started. I think one thing, though, that, that I appreciate a lot about what you write is even though it's very consumer-focused, um, or maybe not even though, just... Um, keeping in mind that it's consumer focused, you definitely don't shy away from talking about wines that are a little bit more ob not obscure or just are, you know, you could probably generate plenty of clicks and plenty of readership talking about varietals and places that people are already familiar with. And so what I think is really cool is like you do this really great job of sort of walking this line between like talking about cool, interesting wine, but still keeping it relatable how how challenging is that? Is it difficult to sort of talk about, you know, I mean, Prosecco is maybe a pretty, you know, consumer friendly wine at this point. But, you know, you write about, um, you know, all kinds of things, uh, including, you know, wines that I think are not on a lot of people's radar. Dude, this is the thing. This is the secret about wine. Once you start getting into it is you realize, oh, my God, if I like this, I might like that. And 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 it seems unfair to the grape varieties of the world to just focus on the top 18 right like cabernet or chardonnay and you can literally iterate on cabernet and chardonnay till your <laughs> face turns blue or you could be like hey guys since i know you might like a buttery chardonnay you should check out some marsan you you might really enjoy that and that has always been something that me personally you know, ever since I found Jancis Robinson's, like, her early wine grapes book, mm -hmm. which is this little guide, uh, I have, it's it's great. And, I mean, it led into a much bigger, bigger book. But it, I was inspired by the idea of stepping outside of discovering new things. Like, I love, yeah, sure, I love Cabernet Sauvignon, but what else is out there? And what else might I never have thought of? of trying. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of a challenge because honestly, people aren't going to be searching for those names like Alianico or Marsan, Roussan, these, these funny names that aren't super familiar to most folks. But as long as they have some contextual way 
to discover that wine. Like, hey, it's a bold red wine. If you want to blow your face off, you got to try these for five varieties <laughs> or something like that. So, so it's about communicating. I mean, because we have over thousands of different varieties we can try. Let's start digging in and exploring them. I'm not married to Cabernet. Yeah, you're not married to Merlot. Well, and I know? think it. I think it comes from this sort of more, uh, you know, kind of contemporary contemporary view of the world of wine, which is like, if you want quality Cabernet, Chardonnay, whatever, you're gonna pay a lot of money for it. You know, you want good Bordeaux, you want good Napa Cab, you want good, you know, Burgundy, white Burgundy. Those wines are not cheap, and they're only getting more expensive. And so, it, I I totally think you know, a thing that I I try and talk to people about a lot, and I think this I I point to your writing a lot in this context is like. If you understand what you like about those wines, unless the answer is just that they're really well known and cost a lot, but if you like, if it's just about the the taste of the wine, the smell of the wine, you know, the actual experience of drinking it, then you can find wines of similar quality, of similar um, sort of composition for you know a small fraction of the cost of those things, and often in you know being made with as much skill and as much care as you'll find in, you know, Bordeaux or Burgundy, not to knock those places. It's just those wines are not in the the budget of, you know, pretty much anybody. You got it. You hit the you hit it on the head. You know, I got into wine in my twenties and what did I not have a lot of? Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're getting into wine period chances are you're starting with a ten dollar to fifteen dollar bottle of wine and that's fancy i remember spending twenty four dollars on a bottle of wine and being extremely disappointed with the results because i didn't know enough about what i was getting into to even choose a wine so finding good values is, is exactly how I started. Hey, it's $7. It's worth the risk. I mean, back then I could buy a lot of $7 Malbec, yeah. you know, uh, maybe not so much right now, but, uh, yeah, that, that is, that is the, that is it. It's price, price for value. What are these regions we've never heard of, you know, in Croatia or Bulgaria or Georgia that, cost only a few dollars portugal man portuguese reds are so delicious and i don't know how to pronounce most of them. <laughs> that's just part of the fun is you you drink a bottle of it and then you really try and pronounce it and it's like a it's a fun party game yeah it's sort of your pronunciation goes to a point where it's pretty good and then as you keep drinking yeah. i just i just assume every single grape there starts with tinto and then i work from there <laughs> i love it Tinto is what the Portuguese word for red. Yeah, something like that. So I think it's a, I think it's a safe bet. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, varietals with that as the uh, as the first word. Um, so I want to talk about um, I think a thing that is particularly um, cool about what you do and and that that is um, I it feels like has become a has been a passion of yours for a while, which is which are maps and understanding the world of wine through geography. Um, where where did your you sort of drive to put together these maps of wine regions of which you have, I mean, I'm going to just throw a number out and hope I'm right. You know, you probably have a couple dozen of them um, available now. Um, where did that come from? Like what, what, you know, th there's obviously, you know, maps in the, uh, you know, there are maps of already existing wine maps, but you know, you really, I think f started from 
pretty much scratch to build the, the maps that you have. What was the what was the impetus for that and, and what was the process like? That has been the biggest learning experience for me in terms of someone who honestly I'm still studying wine and to create a map of a region is to really hone and focus in on an area. You know, I started these maps, I create I created them originally in Adobe Illustrator and they were just me tracing the shapes of a region and tracing where the roads were and doing it all manually. Uh, and so it was definitely a labor, laborious, passionate, laborious affair. As I've gotten better at doing it, there's still a lot of, of zooming in and out and tracing of things, but I have a lot more resources. I've done a lot more research on how to cr actually create cartography. Um, but I would say the impetus for it was this idea of next door regions. If I'm looking at the region of Burgundy, what's, what's next door to some of these well-known appellations that everybody knows and spends a lot of money on it on what's next door to those areas? Maybe it will be different, but maybe it will be actually very similar. And I just haven't heard of it because nobody's putting any marketing dollars into that region. And, and next door to Burgundy is the region of Jura. And if you like Chardonnay, this is a great place to look for fantastic, like awesome Burgundian style Chardonnay, but it's from Jura and nobody's ever heard of this area. So to creating, to creating the maps, we're really about a discovery process that I went through to learn more about wine and where it grows and specifically understand where quality is made. As I've created these maps, I've discovered unique, interesting things. For example, regions with particularly high quality or known for particularly high quality wines tend to be on slopes or hillsides. You know, in the northern hemisphere, they tend to be on southern facing slopes. In the southern hemisphere, they tend to be on northern facing slopes. And so when you start looking at maps this way, using this sort of comparative knowledge after looking at a lot of maps, you start to identify, you start to be like, what's that hill over there? I bet they do good wines. A perfect example of this is um, our most recent map uh, release, which is Champagne. This is a region that is, it's a very confusing region to understand because Champagnes don't really focus so much on the area as much as they do the wine itself and the classification of the wine. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the Champagne region, you realize there's a whole untouched, untalked about area, the Cote, uh, Cote de Bar, the Aube area in the, in the southern part of Champagne that looks a lot like the Grand Cru vineyards in the north. Mm -hmm. And nobody ever talks about them. And so you can, if you're a smart shopper, you can really seek out some amazing values just by looking at a map and being like, what's a wine from over there? And I found some phenomenal champagne values just looking at a map like that and then searching, you know, what what producers are in that area. Yeah. And I think it's it's very it's a very good point to talk about, you know, we we talk about wine from a lot of different perspectives, but it is incredibly important to understand the the very, very strong um influence that uh things like yeah the 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 angle aspect and slope of a hill have to do with uh with 
wine. You know, I was recently in um, in Piedmont in 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 and around Alba, and when you go and you go up to the vineyards there, you know, you have all these hills and all these slopes, and it's stunning to understand. Like, okay, all the Nebbiolo is basically planted with yeah southwest and southeast exposure, and you can really like. I mean, I knew that that was a thing. I was a fact I was aware of before I went there. But when you see it in front yeah. of you and you're just staring at these vineyards and you're like, oh, that slope has Nebbiolo grapes on it. It's clearly facing southeast or southwest. That slope has hazelnut trees. It's facing north. Like it it, it makes it all make sense because, you know, the you the the reading that in a textbook is one thing. And but understanding it and being able to look at a map and go, okay, hey, I, this is probably a place where where grapes could be grown. And I, and I think as people continue to look at, um, you know, expanding uh, new wine regions and places to plant, you know, here in the, in the U.S. and uh, in, in North America in general and, and in other parts of the world, you know, being able to under to read a map and, you know, to look at uh, soil composition as well, which is obviously very important. But but those are incredibly valuable skills and it's not accidental that the majority of the best vineyards in Europe all have a lot of similar geographic features. Yeah, man, that, yes, I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) Have you thought about putting some, some sort of uh, topography into your maps? I mean, they're, they're definitely, um, you know, they kind of hinted that, but I, but I, have you thought about doing, I mean, I've just seen some cool 3d maps of a few wine regions. Is that, is that a thing you've looked at at all? You know, maybe for the future, I want to fit, I want to round out this, this first set that we're doing first and make it a complete unit. And then I'll start looking at, okay, what regions sort of the highlight regions should I really detail a little bit more and learn more about, the different styles of, of map making. Cause you know, each step of learning a new system is, can be pretty challenging. I, I feel like I haven't fully taken advantage of this system, this map making system that I currently use. Absolutely. Uh, so besides, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, aspect and, and, and a little bit about just sort of like exposure to the sun and those things. I think, you know, people forget or it's easy to forget other kind of geographic um, features that really can impact wine and the ability of a place to produce wine. And like to me, the the place that exemplifies this and it's a place I'd love to go see to, to be able to actually experience it in person. But like when you think about Alsace and you look at where it is on a map and you think about like the kind of grapes they grow and the style of wine they make and how impractical that would be if it wasn't for the Vosges Mountains and the sort of rain shadow effect they produce in northeastern France and, and keeping that region fairly dry and, and, and to some extent fairly warm. Um, you know, what what is it that people should be looking for or, or what are some of those features um, that, that you know, if you don't, that, that can sort of also affect um, a wine growing region's ability to be successful that go beyond just like, do they have hills that face south in the northern hemisphere or north in the southern hemisphere? Right, right. Uh, I would say some of the key features would be bodies of water. That's extremely important. If if it's by a sea, a lake, <laughs> you know, or a large ocean, that is going to majorly affect certainly the vineyards that are close to that body of water, but it's also going to overall affect 
how that region is in terms of its production throughout the year. Um, bodies of water have this moderating effect where they'll keep it cooler in the summer, but they'll also keep it warmer in the winter. So that's something that I pay attention to when I'm looking at a map is like, where is this region in terms of, uh, where is this region in terms of that body of water? Um, another thing that I might look at uh, when looking at a map are these, what you talk about mountain ranges. Uh, the mountain ranges are really interesting because they kind of create this induction effect where they pull air up to, into them and, and towards the, 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 top, the more mountainous area that you have a more extreme temperature shift, whereas towards the more valley area, you have more collection of fog and that kind of a thing. So, you know, I'm always paying attention to like where sort of the valleys are and how close they are and how steep basically the mountains look like. Because if you look at some uh, country like Chile or Argentina, which has the Andes Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rather large. Massive. And Chile in particular is is a perfect example of this, where they have literally changed uh, the the country of Chile, the classification system for understanding Chilean wine is changing the way they look at their vineyards simply because the relationship between the ocean and then the Andes Mountains. So they have this induction effect where it's pulling this cold air in from the ocean and then it's going up into the Andes. So that's something that is is really powerful to look at when you're checking out a region. Um, mountainous, hilly areas, that sort of a thing is 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 always important, but uh, I'm trying to think if there's something else. Uh, the position, where it is in terms of the position latitude and longitudinally, and unfortunately I don't have, I should absolutely put uh, latitude lines on my maps in the future, and this isn't forward thinking here, is to see where that position is on the latitude line, because we've sort of said, oh, yeah, wine grows between this latitude and that latitude, maybe like the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to say 30-somethingth parallel yeah. to the about the 50th par so parallel. So sounds about right, yeah. Because I feel like 37 or 30, uh, somebody's going to correct me, tell me what it is, I can't remember the southern part, uh, but uh, the up to the 50th parallel, but we're starting to see that, that latitude line move as with global warming and everything so but where something is positioned helps you reflect different regions and compare them with each other yeah there's going to be a lot of influences besides just that but if i'm looking at the region of champagne which is like 49th or 50th parallel and then i go across to bc which is about the same parallel i'm wondering about bc sparkling wine because i know Champagne does it pretty well in that parallel. I wonder if BC is trying to work on their sparkling wine stuff. Uh, spoiler spoiler warning is they are. Yeah. And they make some very good sparkling wines, actually, which is, uh, which is very cool. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So that's something that I look for. Me personally, if I like a particular style of wine, is where is that region in terms of the world? So if you like big, bold red wines and you're digging Napa Valley and then you go – eastbound into Spain and you're like man you know actually they make some Cabernet blends some Petit Verdot blends in Spain that sort of mimic the style of Napa and boy are they delicious mm -hmm. yeah and that's a that's a really good point and a, a lot of that has to do well there's a lot of the of effect some of it has to do with sort of 
um, you know, relative heat as you get closer or for, you know, the, the amount of heat closer to or further from the equator. And also, you know, sort of this weird inverse thing of the further away from the equator you go, the, the more sun you have during the, the growing season, you know, the, more, the longer the days are, you know, here in Washington, where we both are, you've got quite a bit longer, um, quite a bit more sunlight during the day uh, than you do in, in Napa, you know, a thousand or 800 miles south. Um, and those things are, you know, fundamentally important. I think a thing that bugs me is a little bit like the, uh, like a very, very simple, like, oh, we're at the same parallel as Burgundy. And it's like, okay, great. But like Burgundy isn't just about a latitude line. It's also about like a soil structure, a, a climate, uh, um, a tradition, all those things. So, so I think it's, you know, like anything, you know, you can be a little, you have to take a lot of different um, sort of, uh, you have to take a lot of different factors into consideration when you look at a, a place. But I think that, that champagne parallel is a great example because, you know, part of what makes champagne of a style that works is that incredible acidity that's, that's retained in those grapes. And that's, you know, a product of a, a pretty marginal client climate, to, to change or to sort of also take what, what I think you said a moment ago a little bit further with global warming, with the reality of a sort of shifting cl uh, global climate, are there places that you think like, hey, if I had, you know, if I had the money to just speculate, like I would plant, I'd be looking to plant vineyards here. Like where is it in the world that you've looked at and said like, this is super intriguing. Cause I know, I think, I know you've written about this a little bit and there, you've done a little map of like places that would, you know, the sort of the shift of, uh, of wine regions over the next 50 or 100 years is are there places where you're like really interested to see if people start planting grapes or if they change what they're planting or or whatever uh you know switzerland's gonna start making better and better wines for mm. sure because they I, have the altitude you i know? wish they and, weren't so expensive that's the one problem with swiss I, wine it, they're great they're great they're just they're they're the swiss so they'll charge you know an unreasonable amount of money for anything you know, I, I would say, I would say every single region you look at, you can kind of go, if you're in the Southern hemisphere, you can go more South. And if you're in the Northern hemisphere, you can go more North. Um, the, the issue with climate change and the thing that everybody's complaining about the most is not so much the, the heating up of things. Yeah, that is an issue. You know, you can have really bad droughts in Spain or Portugal that can just really you know, in a region like the Duro, which isn't allowed to irrigate, you'll have an ex a, such a small harvest and the grapes are coming in are just weak. And it's a really, really huge challenge in the, in the Duro Valley. And that would be one of the areas that I'm deeply concerned about with global warming is what's going to happen to the Duro. What are they going to do to, to, to solve that problem? They're already uh, doing a huge dam actually totally blocking off an entire growing region and it's going to get entirely dammed up it was a natural area there's some old sort of terraced areas and stuff and it's going to get and well it's already being um turned into a water um reservoir so so regions like that napa valley is another one where there's going to be challenging but if you just go a little bit north to mendocino to lake county um suddenly Lake County is like, wow, they actually grow pretty good grapes there. So yeah, if I was prospecting, I'd be looking in Lake County for sure. Uh, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, I would, uh, 
I'm really excited about what uh, British Columbia has to offer. Again, we're talking about sort of on the fringe. Uh, I've been hearing a lot from people writing in from Poland going like, we make good working on making wine up here. So I'm, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there, but Poland, I've got some, uh, you know, they're productive. They're extremely good farmers, very good agribusiness over in Poland. And they're, they're small. So they, they're very focused on what they do. So I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, Southern Chile and Argentina uh, have Patagonia, which is remarkable area for different soil types, different climate styles, and and the opportunities to grow really cool, cooler climate uh, grape varieties are going to be awesome. So I, you know, everywhere is going to change, but at the same point, it's going to it's going to be just fine. Uh, getting back to the part where I said the big the big issue. The big issue is not so much about the temp things heating up. The issue is the variability in the climate. Every single thing I've read on climate change and wine has to do with, oh my God, why do we get hail <laughs> one week before harvest? We never have gotten hail before. Mm-hmm. And it completely destroyed my crop. That just happened in... Beaujolais uh, and Chablis. And well, around harvest time, it happened in... Um, uh, Pick St. Loop, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, in those, in the, yeah, like in uh, the Languedoc. Shishinian? Someone, I don't remember the exact location of where it was, but it was devastating. And these are the issues we're going to run into the most with climate change is all of a sudden it's snowing in July for no reason at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so those, so those are the big problems with climate change that that has everybody really concerned. Yeah, you're right. Beaujolais was terrible. Some places lost 100% of their um, that year's uh, basically little flowers that pop out. So, I, I uh, so one time on the one point, I'm really hopeful for up and coming regions, Canada, Poland, <laughs> that are like, hey, we can actually plant grapes now. But on the other hand, I'm super concerned about what this means in general and you know fortunately a lot of people complain oh grapes are monoculture but uh vineyards can be you can diversify your crop if you're smart as a farmer and i think that more vineyard areas should do this Um, but also vineyards take very little water it's a it's kind of a a drought resistant grape in general Uh, so you know, when you're comparing vineyard land to pasture land, it uses, and I, I might not be exactly right on my statistics here, but it's something like 10 times less water than than uh, uh, animal husbandry. So it's it's a big it's a big difference. Yeah, there's definitely you know for for the sort of ratio of water to um, yeah, I mean, there's just yeah, there's just not anywhere near. There are very few crops. I think olives are pretty much the only other thing I can think of that require sort of similarly low number or a similarly low amount of water to um, to establish and and produce viable uh, a viable crop. Um, anyhow, on a on a sort of uh, less <laughs> forward looking, less possibly depressing topic, um, I have a, a totally unrelated question that's just about wine in general um but it's i think an interesting uh sort of topic in the sort of wine community uh do you blind taste much wine do you do you see a lot of value in tasting wine blind uh i'd love to uh blind taste wine Uh, i think the what blind tasting does it's less about getting a 
answer right. And it's more about tasting something without any preconceived notion as to what it is that you're tasting. And you re- you basically remove all of that schmutz that you have in your mind about a particular wine or a particular region or whatever, and you just taste it for what it is. And it's, it's extremely powerful. I wish I did more lately. You know, when I was working in the restaurant, I had the opportunity to blind taste all the time. And now that I don't, I have very few opportunities unless I'm like, hey, buddy, open something that I don't know what it is, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> hopefully I don't remember what, what it is so I can figure out what it is. Uh, but I would say, you know, the primary purpose of blind tasting as a beginner is to step outside to really pay attention to what you're putting in your mouth. Just what is it that you're smelling and to isolate it and to focus it. And I, I mean, I think it's the coolest thing in the world to, to teach people is how to really taste wine and to really get into it, do the retronasal, like get the wine all over your palate and think about what flavors you're getting. So many people just turn, you know, they make a tube with their tongue and they send the wine to the back of their throat. And they're like, mm, yum, sweet berry wine. And, and you'd be surprised, like it's so common. And so blind tasting to me is a way to, to practice active tasting. And as soon as you do, the, the bigger thing here with active tasting is suddenly you're tasting foods differently too. And that's extremely powerful, not only for the, the fact that you are aware of what you're putting in your mouth, but it, it also makes you better, it makes you a better cook in that respect, but it also makes you pay attention for health purposes. Like if you're eating something that is really greasy and oily and you're really actively tasting it, you'll actually start to feel it overload your palate and and it actually doesn't, like a few bites and you're done. And, And that's really, you know, if you're just trying to watch your weight or something like that, it's really cool to actively taste your foods in this manner because it actually forces you to to, to acknowledge what's happening in your mouth and be like, oh my God, I need a palate cleanser. I need a, some Coke or I want some sparkling wine to clean my palate or you know what? I'm done. I don't want any more. Mm-hmm. So I think active tasting is really cool just for that purpose. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it, it also sort of, it creates this whole different um, way of, of enjoying food or wine in a sort of more, more sort of, uh, I guess sensual way is is the sort of like I am I am not just eating this thing or drinking this thing mindlessly like I'm tasting it and I'm really trying to understand you know what is it doing on my tongue what is it doing as I smell it what is it doing as I swallow it I, one of the funniest things f- for me that I noticed um, when I first started kind of getting into wine and studying it a little bit more is that like I started smelling everything um, which occasionally <laughs> would weird people out because yeah. to me like. Uh, you know, if you if you talk like like if you talk about what is you know what is a given fruit or or or, or whatever vegetable or spice or flower or taste or smell like, the only way to learn those things is to just stick your nose in and smell them. And like, you know, if you want to understand what jasmine smells like, like you got to smell jasmine. You can't just memorize tasting notes for a varietal and be like, oh yeah, you know, Viognier, I'm gonna get white flowers, so I'm gonna say I get jasmine. Like, you have to know what that is, um, or at least have some you know some sort of um, association in your brain with it um i do think that like my my thing with blind tasting is that i think it is a a very valuable tool uh to have in your arsenal 
I think it is, you know, I hear some people who buy wine, you know, who are sommeliers or, or run wine programs who sort of um, tout the merits of trying to taste everything you buy, everything they're going to order or buy for their shop or their, their restaurant or whatever blind. To me, there's, there is a danger in that of like, of being too, of not real, of not dealing with the reality of wine, which is that like, you need to have stuff, I think in any place, any, a shop, a, a wine program at a restaurant or bar or whatever that that people recognize and um i i don't know do you do you feel like it's it's challenging to sort of strike a balance between the kind of wines you know kind of going back to what we we're talking about at the beginning of this conversation you know to strike a balance between the kind of wines that people are familiar with the, the varietals or regions or whatever that people are familiar with and sort of the stuff that may be the best value or the most interesting how do you kind of walk that line i mean if i was making a wine list in a restaurant I would focus my attention on right now, if I was doing it right now, I would honestly be looking for value for the bang for the buck because I think a lot of consumers, particularly in restaurants, with the markup being as high as it is, uh, there's no point in trying. Yeah, name recognition is good and I could probably make some sales on that, but the way that I t that I do wine folly, at least, is that that doesn't matter. What matters more is your taste. So if I was making a wine list, I would be like, this pairs with these dishes, or this tastes like this and goes well with these types of foods. I would be more interested in their experience of the taste than I would be interested in, say, the variety. So I don't have to push Sancerre because you've heard Sancerre. You can try a weird Gruner Vetliner because it probably goes really well to chicken you're ordering. So I think I would think about the problem completely differently if I was a Psalm. Maybe it's the reason why I'm not a Psalm, but I don't know. Like I would love, I've seen some lists that do that really intelligently and I'm very impressed. And I've talked about them before on Wine Folly where I see wines that I've never seen on a list before and they're crazy and they're made in a crazy way and they taste crazy, but they go so well with the kimchi, you know, like, so it's, so I, you know, I think I'm I'm the most impressed by sommeliers who really can taste and really do care enough to taste their dishes in their restaurant and think very carefully about how their wines are gonna gonna fit that model. You know, retail is a bit different because on the retail side you have that demand. I want Malbec. You don't have Malbec? Well, then I'm not shopping here. So I would probably have to have some great typicity examples, and I call it typicity you know, the, the taste of Malbec from Argentina, mm -hmm. the, the typicity of Malbec, or that some call it typicality. That's actually a vocabulary word where typicity is totally made up. Um, but this is another problem where you're going to be like, well, I have this section, then maybe a bold red wines that go well with beef <laughs> and barbecue. And then over here, I've got light white wines, maybe the Gruner's sitting next to the Sancerre. So you're like, what is this Gruner? It seems kind of related because they're next to each other. I'm really excited about about retail that does that and restaurants that explore more from the pr perspective of taste than they do from the perspective of name recognition. Because when it comes down to it, you're going to put the stuff in your mouth and you're going to swallow it and, and hopefully it's a good experience. Well, and it's certainly true that I think like in a way as a as a culture here in the U.S. and, and you know, um, we've come to a point where we kind of largely accept as a as a culture that like you go to out to you go out to dinner and you're you're willing you know people are willing to put a certain amount of trust a certain amount of faith in the chef in the restaurant to maybe put together ingredients flavors 
that they're not super familiar with, you know, unless you're really, um, really, uh, deeply involved in the, in the food industry or you dine out a ton, there's, you know, you look at a modern, you know, American, uh, a sort of a cutting and not even cutting edge, just like a high quality, relatively modern American restaurant. There's probably going to be some ingredients on the menu that you're not going to recognize. And we all kind of take it as a, as a given that that's, we're, we're cool with that. You know, yeah, you know, some people might want to stick with the dishes, the ingredients that they're familiar with, but, but a lot of diners are willing to experiment. I find it, you know, in my in my job in a, as you know, running a wine program in a restaurant, that people are still a little bit leery of trusting trusting in a varietal in a region in a style of wine that they're not super familiar with, and obviously that's that's increasing. You know, they're, they're, the comfort is increasing, but it's it is still there's still a lot of uh, people willing to, or I say people who unless really given um uh unless the the pairing or the the option is really put right in front of them they they do tend to fall back on what they're familiar with which is i I totally understand it's a it's a very reasonable response um but it does create this kind of interesting challenge of like okay how do i convince someone that you know this bottle or this glass even of of gruner veltliner or you know to talk about you know what you're talking about with um with sort of uh, richer whites, you know, this bottle, this glass of Marsan or this Roussan Marsan blend, like this is going to be um, what they want. This is going to be maybe even more than what they want, but they, they, they just have to get past that point where like, it's like, you know, it's like stepping out into the, into the unknown a little bit. Um, And, you know, in retail, I think it's a little bit, in some ways a little bit easier because the, 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 as you mentioned, you know, there's less markup, there's less sort of cost and or less price investment, um, I don't know. This wasn't even a question. This is just a. This is just me me talking about my experience. But I, I do think it's really interesting because because it is you know there's incredible hunger that I sense for people to learn more and to try and understand more. And yet at the same time, it does require this sort of like stepping out into you know stepping out on a limb a little bit, stepping out into the unknown a little bit of like okay, I'm yeah. going to leave Sauvignon Blanc behind and I'm gonna f- I'm gonna try my luck with Gruner Veltliner. Yeah, there's a risk for sure. Uh, taking calculated risks is the approach that I want people to take. And knowing what calculated risks are is the, is the solution, right? Like knowing that Gruner Veltliner is a good alternative to Sauvignon Blanc. How do you know that? Did you read it on an article on Wine Folly? Did, did the sommelier on the menu say, Sauvignon Blanc's best friend, Gruner Veltliner? You know, something some way to contextualize it or like did you want to drink bell peppers tonight you know like (laughs) this is this is how we do it and and to communicate in terms of somebody's perspective of taste and their experience is far more useful than to talk about the region of austria you know like i don't know what austria tastes like that's not a genre for me if i'm not already intuitively experienced with it and this is the challenge that we have as experts and i'm sure there's a lot of folks who listen to your podcast that are experts is that you learn it from the perspective of where it grows and then you learn what austria tastes like how do you communicate that taste that's a different you got to go back to not knowing anything at all and remind yourself that gruner veltliner tastes like bell peppers or something like that mm-hmm. in order to help people find their way into their, this is like drinking limeade or, you know, like some kind of way. I I know these are terrible examples and you can totally ream me for this, but, but this is, this is the issue 
that we have with wine is how do you communicate taste? And there's surprisingly, as much as we know about our vision and our sense of touch and uh, all these things, and we talk a lot about taste, we don't actually know that much about taste and aroma um, as much as we as we as we could. Mm-hmm. And it definitely seems like a direction that you know you've. Um, you focused a lot of your attention and energies um, of late as, you know, sort of on trying to build this vocabulary that is both, um, you know, technically correct, but also approachable. And I think that's, you know, one of the huge challenges for wine professionals, especially the slightly more sort of scientific oriented ones is to is to to take the ever growing body of scientific knowledge about wine and turn it into language that means something that isn't just you know, chemical co- or, you know, chemical compounds and, and all that, that, that really, I mean, if, if talking about, you know, what is, you know, if you say like, oh, you want to drink bell peppers, that's, I mean, that's already maybe a little hard to, to understand for people. And if you say, oh, you, you like pyrazines in your wine. Now you're really kind of getting into this place where you're really losing, I mean, you're losing a ton of people. Um, so, you know, how do you balance what I think is, you know, a pretty, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, I would guess, uh, you know, in your eyes, uh, somewhat a somewhat a personal fascination with the science of wine, and how do you how do you kind of translate that into, you know, for lack of a better word, English? <laughs> I I mean, I just I I I do exactly what I was saying. I go back to the position where I I don't know anything, and I try to imagine this thing from that perspective. And the cool thing about aroma compounds and all of that that sort of angle of taste is, I mean, yes, there are a ton and they are all intermingle and there's, it's problematic, but fortunately we can all agree. We generally speaking, unless you can't taste some of these aroma compounds and some people can't, um, we can sort of agree on some sort of big groupings. Um, of course, the more I read about taste, the more it is an independent experience, depending on who you are. So it's going to be, this is going to be a challenge, you know, and, and the language, I think, is the important part is we don't have enough language to describe flavor and taste and and more language needs to be introduced at a rudimentary level. So somebody's walking into a grocery store going, I like something smooth and red that they have some more language to describe what they want and what they like besides yeah. smooth. I, as long as it's smooth, you know, like I, <laughs> I know that, I know that conversation well. So if, if anyone, if, if my blog does its job right, is that hopefully the baseline is saying, I just don't like too much tannin, <laughs> you yeah. know, that would be so much better, you know, and then, and, this is the goal is to give people the language and empower them with these this terminology to communicate about wine and as soon as we can learn how to communicate wine amongst ourselves even with our taste discrepancies you know some people are colorblind some people can see some people can hear colors you know but like so so as long as we can sort of have a generalized communication with one another about wine we'll we'll be better off you know, being able to understand more and more about wine and accept more and more about, well, even all foods for that matter. Absolutely. That's, I got a very excited dog in the background here. He's, uh, he's, I think he's, he's very enthusiastic about, uh, developing a vocabulary for wine. (laughs) He actually, he actually likes wine. It's very funny. Well, no, 
I mean, not like he'll go drink it out of our glass, but he very vigorously enjoys licking it off my fingers when I uh, when I wow. drink him in the glass. So he's, uh, I don't know, he's. I'm going to teach him to smell faults and wines next, I think. Be my next project. Oh, my God. I would love to have that on video. Let's together <laughs> we'll, when your dog can smell faults and wine. We'll, we'll work on that. So I have one last question for you, which is uh, obviously the Wine Folly book has been a huge success uh, with, uh, I believe, you know, New York Times bestseller. You're in many, many languages. I just randomly found your book in a in a bookstore in Paris and had to send you a picture of it, which was very fun. Um is there? Do you have another another book on the horizon? Is it something you could talk about, or is uh, or is that uh, is that just uh, something? Yeah, something regardless about? of whether or not the publisher says yay or nay, we totally have another book on the horizon. <laughs> nice. Um, and I mean, I I have a bunch of different cool ideas, but the main one that we're going to do is going to be in uh, coordination with the update to our site and. Uh, basically everything that Wine Folly falls short of, I think the book, rather the Wine Folly, the book falls short of, I want to go back through and answer in this other more expanded volume so that it is more of a guide for more regions to communicate better. And, you know, what I've learned with the first book, I want so badly to improve with the second book. And so that's, that's definitely going to happen. Awesome. Well, well, we are. We will. Uh, we'll. I will look forward very much to hearing more about that as it comes to pass. And uh, Madeline, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we will check out, uh, of course, winefly.com. We'll look for your book, and uh, we'll uh, we'll look to uh, see what comes from you in the future. Thanks. Thanks again to Madeline Puckett for joining me on Disgorged. For more of her work, check out winefolly.com. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter at winefolly, or find her book basically anywhere they sell them. You can also find me on social media at Zjebal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E, and on the web at vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V. Thanks so much for listening to Disgorged, and cheers.